0: Welcome to the Bold Movement Podcast. Every Thursday, you can expect an exegetical approach to Scripture as you're led verse by verse through the real stories in the Bible. You can find all episodes of the Bold Movement Podcast for free on iTunes and Spotify. And every Monday, make sure to check out Bold Is. This week, join Meg as she teaches you God's Word and discover why, to this day, it's still as relevant and significant as it was then. Are you ready to be bold? Here's your host, Megan Rollins. Hey guys, thanks for listening. In this episode, we're going to work through Esther chapter 4. If you're new to our podcast, welcome. We're very excited you're here. We will read a verse or two of scripture, then we will stop and discuss what it means. Let's go ahead and get started. Today we are reading from the New American Standard Bible, commonly known as the NASB. Let's start in chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went out as far as the king's gates, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. This seems strange to those in Western culture. We are conditioned to keep our grief and sadness private, and the thing that Mordecai is doing might seem a little over the top to us. But I want you to keep in mind that he was just handed a death sentence, and more than that, all of the Jews were going to be murdered. Frankly, it was because of him. Karen Job says Mordecai reacts with great emotion when he hears that the personal conflict between himself and Haman has brought the entire Jewish nation into jeopardy. Haman's plan to annihilate all the Jewish people is way out of proportion to Mordecai's offense. Apparently, Mordecai's behavior had merely given Haman the excuse to put his power behind his anti-Semitism. Verse 4. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathok from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So something I want you all to know. Inside the palace, it appears that no one really knew that the edict took place between the king and Haman. Mordecai was mourning, and Esther did not know why. Mordecai did not have direct access to Esther, and due to this, they communicated through a mediator. In this case, it was Hathak, who obviously placed loyalty within Esther. Verse 6 says, So Hathak went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict, which had been issued in Susa for the destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her, and to order her to go into the king to explore his favor and to plead with him for her people. According to Joyce Baldwin, There is nothing private about the meeting between Hathic and Mordecai, which took place in the market square, beyond the palace gate where everyone congregated. Mordecai did not hesitate to disclose all the exact information with special attention to the financial inducement that Haman had offered to the king. Rich though he undoubtedly was, Ahasuerus still responded to promise of even greater wealth, though he had repuditated it. The betrayal of people in exchange for money has always been particularly repugnant, never more so than when Judas betrayed Jesus, and Esther could be counted on to react with passionate resentment. A copy of the decree would silence any doubts about the accuracy of the information and raise the question, what should be done? Was the decree posted on the city wall for all to see and read? Mordecai's last word ordered her to use her influence with the king on behalf of her people, and still... He told he still told her what to do, even though she was queen. Touches such as this, which are true to life, give the story great human appeal. Verse 9. Hathak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's province know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court, who is not summoned, he has but one law that he be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. They related Esther, They related Esther's words to Mordecai. I know that this makes sense, right? It's pretty straightforward. But let's talk about what Mordecai is actually asking Esther to do. Guys, I am straight up quoting these commentaries because this is some Super interesting information that I don't want to mess up by trying to paraphrase. So in today's episode, I am reading completely straight from these um, commentaries, and I apologize because I don't like parrots. I think people who just quote straight from commentaries are lazy. (laughs) That's really rude, isn't it? But it's true. I think people need to think critically about things, but in this case, I am going against everything that I believe in. So here we go. Karen Jobes said, Herodotus attests that the Persian king enforced a law first instituted by diocese, the Mede, forbidding anyone to approach the king without a summons. The correct protocol was to request an audience with the king through his messenger eunuchs and await an invitation for an audience. There were only seven men in the court known as the king's friends who were permitted to see the face of the king. Herodotus explained that only they could enter the king's presence unannounced, except when he was sleeping with a woman. Haman had access to the king, but Esther did not. Isn't that insane? Could you imagine your husband's best friend having access to him and you not having that kind of access? Let's move on. Verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Again, I'm going to quote straight from Karen Jobes. She said, Mordecai pointedly remarks that even if the queen should decide to continue to hide her Jewish identity, as he himself had previously advised, she will face certain death, but the Jews will be helped from another place. Some commentators have seen in the phrase an allusion to God's intervention, should human agency fail. The reason the phrase from another place can be construed as a veiled reference to God is because in rabbinical Hebrew, God is sometimes referred to as the place. In Genesis, um, where God is referred to as the place in which all creation exists, this rabbinical idiom, however, dates from a later age in any case. Mordecai does not say that help for the Jews will arise from quote-unquote the place, but simply from another place. Mordecai is expressing his confidence that the Jews will not face annihilation, but will be helped through some other human agent. Modern interpreters are not the only ones to see in this phrase a possible allusion to God. One of the two ancient Greek translations of Esther rephrases Mordecai's statement this way, If you neglect to help your people, then God will be their help and salvation, but you and your father's house will perish. However, this does not necessarily mean that from another place was understood by the Greek translator as a reference to God. God is referred to many places throughout the Greek versions of Esther where he is not in the Hebrew text, from which the NIV was translated. Isn't that interesting? The reading in the Greek may simply be one of the many places where a reference to God is added independently from how the Hebrew read. If from another place is a euphemism for God, Mordecai's statement means that if Esther fails to act, God himself will intervene. This understanding is problematic, for it is not a choice between Esther's delivering the Jews or God delivering them. Rather, it is a question of what human agency God will use to deliver the Jews since they have no king. Mordecai's point is that the Jews will be delivered somehow, but that Esther's doom is certain if she fails to act. Verse 15, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, nights, or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way, and thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. Joyce Baldwin said that Esther's reply is also a confession of faith, though it is not couched in overtly religious language. She implies that she accepts the suggestion of Mordecai as her duty, but that she is full of apprehension at the thought of fulfilling it. By asking that all the Jews in Susa join her in a fast, Esther acknowledges that she needs the support and fellowship of others, and she depends on more than human courage. Though prayer is not mentioned, it was always the accompaniment of fasting in the Old Testament, and the whole point of fasting was to render the prayer experience more effective and prepare oneself for communion with God. For Esther, Isaac Watt's hymn would have been appropriate, had it been written in her day. I'm not ashamed to own my lord or to defend his cause. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law." That's what I'm talking about here, that verse. These words sum up the problems of conscience that face believers in many situations today and divide the church. If it were not for the fact that people like Martin Luther King and countless others have lost their lives in opposing powerful majorities, we might think that Esther's, If I perish, I perish, was overdramatic. Certainly, Jesus promised that words to say would be given to his followers when they were brought to trial, but not that they would be acquitted. From this point on, Esther, who had up till now done as Mordecai told her, herself takes the lead and assumes responsibility in her own right. Wow. I think it is very important to let scripture tell you a story and you learn from it, but I cannot help but wonder if my response would have been the same as Esther's. I would like to think so, but we would never understand this unless we were put in that position. I'm sorry again that I straight up quoted from the commentaries, but I thought the way that they said it was just, I was not going to be able to say it as effectively paraphrased. So thank you for bearing with me on today's episode. That's all I have for you on this episode of the Bull Movement Podcast. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week when we talk about Chapter 5 of Esther. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Plus, if you are wondering what Bible translation is best for you, stop by our website at www.theboldmovement.com and check out our latest blog. Until next time, go out and be bold.